This is episode 182 of the Swallier Pride podcast, and today we are back for part two of our conversation, looking back one year on COVID-19 with Dr. Marty Brodsky and Dr. Anna Miles. And if you missed part one, you can go back to last week's episode and check it all out. So when I first started using social media and the internet for contact with the world of the medical speech language pathologist, I noticed that while there was a lot of potential there, there were also a lot of problems. Like whose information do you trust? Who is an expert? Is what being posted online really evidence-based practice? By answering those questions for myself, I found the answer for some others. That answer has become the Medical SLP Collective. As we all learned last year with COVID, sometimes there is no roadmap or journal article for a specific case or scenario. Using clinical expertise from a variety of settings combined with research and experience, we've cultivated a supportive community that provides education and mentorship to help you get the best results for your patients. Join us May 17th through May 21st for our third Medical SLP Summit. Join us to hear cutting edge information from 20 of our mentors that help to educate our members daily. The summit serves as the grand opening for the Medical SLP Collective open enrollment period, which will begin during the summit. You can sign up for the Medical SLP Summit completely free at www.medslpcollective.com forward slash summit. That's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash S-U-M-M-I-T. And we look forward to seeing you there. If you don't need any further convincing and would like to sign up now for the MedSLP Collective or just check out a little bit more about what it is all about, you can go directly to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash video series. That's medslpcollective.com forward slash video series. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. You know, so so where are we now? You know, is it safe to be going back to doing fees, you know, like we were before, you know, Anna, should we be doing cough reflux testing? You know, what, what do you, what do you guys think? Where are we? A resounding yes. <laughs> I, you know, we have to get on with treating patients. They're coming out of every place <laughs> from rest from their homes, from the hospital, from the ICU, from ED, um, uh, we need to treat patients the best way we know how. And 
we have an evidence base that we trust. We're always building on it. That's what we get tired doing every day is trying to help clinicians to have more evidence every day, but we have to treat people the best they can be treated. We have got plenty of support from the CDC, from our associations telling us how to do that with the best level of PPE, but we need to fight hard that not treating people isn't acceptable. We certainly shouldn't be putting ourselves at risk, and I would not be asking any speech pathologist to treat someone if their hospital will not provide them with the right PPE. They should be fighting bloody hard to get it, and they should be making a massive fuss about it when their associations and the worldwide organizations are saying, treat people, they need to be treated. Yep. A- amen to that. I, I, no possible way to say that any better. Um, I, I, I'll add a little bit to it. I mean, you took 99% of it. I, I got, I got nothing, almost nothing left. <laughs> um, I, you know, it, the reality is this ethically, we are bound all by our society societies to provide the best level of care that we can. And that means overcoming these hurdles, period. In addition to that, I don't know about you, but I've not read a single document that's been published in peer-reviewed form. I'm not talking about policy now. I'm talking about a peer-reviewed article. And starting all the way back in April and May of last year, not one that I have read has said that we should be stopping to do any instrumental evaluation for swallowing. Not one. There are cautions. Carefully, yeah. Yeah, there are cautions. And that's why we needed to understand what increases risk. Yep. We know now that we were in a unique situation as speech pathologists, that we insist on a patient not having a mask on for a lot of what we do. Many of our colleagues didn't need that. They could do their whole consult with a, a mask on a patient. We can't do that because it's the mouth we're after. We know that we need to get in close proximity and that increases our risk of spread because we have to get right up to that face in order to treat it. We know that we need to get right up to it for prolonged periods of time. So the longer we're there, the more at risk we're at. Uh, We know that the the behaviours we ask our patients to do makes them more at risk of spreading virus. And we know that the people we're most likely to see are the people who are less likely to be able to control their virus. So they've got cognitive impairments. They've got an inability to control the fact they just coughed like crazy because it was the aspiration that made them cough. So we're putting out- In fact, we were the ones who made them cough by giving them the thing that made them cough. That's right. So the talking, the singing, the coughing, the- expectorating, the the breathing out through an EMST, all of those things we know put us and the patient and anybody in the proximity of that patient at risk. And we know that COVID just happens to have made that, has been so extremely contagious that things we were already doing, we were already spreading whatever was in that person's mouth through that EMST and into that room. And every time we used a cough reflex test, we were sending nebulized respiratory 
secretions out of that person into anywhere that those droplets could fall or particleize and go somewhere, right? We knew that was the case, but we didn't know, we didn't have COVID to make us realize quite how bad that could be. So now we just need to accept those things, know that that's very different to an interview between a social worker and a patient or a doctor and a patient while they're looking at a screen and showing them an MRI MRI result. We are doing massive numbers of things that make it worse. So we just have to accept we need to insist on ventilation. We need to have PPE. We need to disinfect every surface. And most of us have just got used to that, that it's like out they go. The next thing we do with every doorknob, every seat, uh, every part of our fees stack that we can wipe we're wiping and we should probably always have done it like there's so many things I've learned that I'm like wow did I really for 25 years not clean my fees stack in that manner like we're just we've learned that what we do is actually high risk And, and let's be clear about this just because we didn't do it doesn't mean we shouldn't have no right um you know, I, we have learned so much from this. The, the reality is the patients have not changed. They're still coughing. They're still gagging. They're still expectorating. They're, they're still puking. They're, whatever they're doing, they're still doing it. It's our response to the patients that needs to change. And it's our ability to protect ourselves that needs to be addressed. That's what the big issue was. And it only took how many months to figure that out? But that's, that is really what we're talking about, right? So should we have never stopped the instrumentals? Arguably, we needed to get our ducks in a row and figure out what the heck this is and you know, how do we protect ourselves so that we can protect others in health. And the next patient, I guess that was the other thing I didn't say around what our risk is, is that I don't know what it's like in some places in America, but in New Zealand, that speech therapist goes to more wards and more, near more other staff and near more other patients than anyone else in a hospital because we don't have like a physio, they're one ward and they stay there. We're like wandering from ED to respiratory to ortho down to... It's no different. So we're going so many places and meeting so many different people that, of course, that meant we should have always been very aware that we were the one that could be carrying the, whatever we've got on us, with us, to the next place. So, yeah, I mean, of course, we're protecting ourselves, but really we're protecting ourselves primarily in order to protect the next person we come near because that's our you know, professional obligation that we are not the cause of harm. Um, and we need to we need to learn to do that forever, not just for COVID. That's exactly right. I, and and all the while maintaining the professional standards that we have as a profession. Um, that should never have been compromised ever. We just need to figure out how to work within our own safety boundaries to get at those. And that's where I think the step back, kind of um, the genesis of that came from. Um, was we needed to regroup and figure out how we were how we were going to keep ourselves safe in order to make 
the professional grade, if you will. I think a lot of it, you know, obviously there was the massive PPE shortage in the beginning, you know, and, and then I think a lot of these places never really recovered nor knew what to do. You know, I mean, there still was places that, you know, they're telling them to use rain ponchos and reuse them every day. You know, it was like, the creativity was great, but the reality of it was terrible execution. Supply chains are still down. Right. Yeah. Um, we've, we have not come back. You know, there's some countries in a horrible state. I think one of the other interesting outcomes of this banning of endoscopy is that we've had a bit of a lag in realizing the laryngeal injuries of the COVID patients because we weren't scoping them for a while. And we're only just starting to realize quite how relevant that is. I mean, I think we probably could have guessed it. We know from so much of Marty's work that the longer you're intubated, the more likely you are to have problems. Um, So these patients, most definitely all of the literature is saying are intubated longer than the average ICU patient. So they're already at high risk because of that. But it appears that they are getting different types of laryngeal injury and more severe laryngeal injuries. And that's certainly what we're all seeing in the outpatient clinics. And it's a good reason to advocate for fees and to advocate for early endoscopy and to advocate for monitoring those over time, you know, not giving, not just first, first feed, but also carrying on keeping an eye on them in outpatient clinics to see how they get on because this laryngeal pathology, nobody else is going to pick up. We know what happens to these people. If they're not severely dysphagic and you get them on an oral diet in the hospital, they get lost. And then they sit at home and they manage that for life, thinking that's just their lot. Um, And they never really think about the fact that they can't do their job in in a reception anymore because their voice keeps on petering out or they get a bit breathless as they go uphill they they presuming that's just what they have to deal with. We know that there are ways that we and our ENT colleagues can treat these things successfully. We can treat anatomy. Um, so we need to follow these people up because there's a really good chance those are going to be occupational and health outcomes that are easily preventable. And speech path is, we're the ones that are going to do this. So, you know, I would be definitely telling any speech pathologist document on the day they leave ICU what their voice is like and don't leave them like that. Do not go, oh, it's okay, they're 70 or it's okay, they've been in ICU for a month, of course they're going to be a bit dysphonic. Don't presume that's just a little bit of edema that's going to go away because data that's coming out now is suggesting it's not. It's much more pathological than that. It's granulomas, it's stenosis, it's, uh, it's palsies, it's, it's big stuff that actually won't go away unless we treat it. What's really scary about what you're saying, I, it's all scary, you know, taken in and of itself. Very frightening but, person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> we'll deal with it, right? Um, one of one of the the scary things we we know about silent aspiration, you know, the lack of sensation that leads to no cough gag or any kind of response from the patient, right? I'm beginning to think that there's a silent stenosis, and what I mean by that very specifically is there are patients whose voices sound normal, 
or they're barely different from what the patient says is their baseline. And then when you go to scope them, you realize they have laryngeal stenosis or subglottic stenosis. And may, that may ultimately develop into hypoxic or anoxic events when the, the bands tighten and the larynx draws closer uh, to the vocal cords coming uh, and shutting. And as you were talking, that breathlessness that in three weeks, three months, whatever period it is, the person's increased work of breathing lands them back in the hospital. And they then become a major issue because they become a uh, an issue for the emergency department team in order to intubate because they're now known as a difficult airway. These are the kinds of things that we're seeing a great deal of. Forget COVID. That's my current study. We're seeing these patients who there's a certain percentage of those um, who are stenosed and their voice is unmatched to the injury. And similarly, whether it's granulation tissue or ulceration or hematoma or even paresis or um, hypomobile cords, voice is not matching injury to the larynx many of the times. So I begin thinking about this silent phenomenon. Um, some people might call it asymptomatic or um, unrelated to the voice or, I, you know, however you think about it, silent seems a little bit sexy in the moment because I can relate that to aspiration, which is the dysphagia we've been talking about, right? Um, but, but what you're talking about is really hitting home right now in that whatever you see sans COVID, what's happening in COVID appears to be even worse. I, I think I think the silent stenosis nails it. I mean, it's it's way more common, I think, than anybody ever really talks about. I mean, in doing mobile fees for years and years, we saw it way more than, yeah. And we also know we don't push people in hospital because they're sick. And I've always believed this cognitively, aphasia, voice, swallow, the difference between readiness for discharge and they've got better. When you started off, you know, in an ICU bed, unable to breathe, that, that's completely different to I've now got to go back and do our day job. Like none of us could do our day job and do the things we do to exercise, to stay healthy with a stenosis <laughs> because it would affect our ability to project and talk for two hours on a podcast and to go for the run that I'll go for after this. Um, but I might not have picked that up if I was just lying in bed feeling a little bit better than I was last week and now I'm awake and I'm talking to you. I think we need to be very careful and I've always felt like this. This is another whole topic around pushing instrumental assessment that while we're giving people tiny sips of things, we're never going to see whether they're actually fine. We're just going to see if they're fine on a tiny sip. And you have to have some pushing aspects to every assessment and whether that is that you push them in the instrumental assessment or you have other tools like eight, 10 assessments that truly look at how is it impacting on your life. You've got to have something that's just more than ITSI zero to seven. I mean, you can be ITSI zero to seven. Every single head and neck cancer patients, ITSI zero to seven. 
they are horribly dysphagic, horribly impacted by their um, impairment. But ask them what they eat and they'll say, oh, yeah, I can eat anything. It's not, it's not discernible. It's not enough. And in hospital, we just don't push people to that limit because they're not quite ready yet. I, I have a, a stats analogy. If you can imagine, as you were talking, I don't know where the heck my brain has been, but especially in this past moment, but I suddenly come up with this whole idea about the null hypothesis, right? Just because, and you getting back to the issue um, that you just mentioned with regard to testing somebody and pushing them, right? If you don't push them, you know that they're capable of whatever it is that they gave that you were giving them. They were able to accept it, but you don't know beyond that, right? It is no different than being underpowered in any study or any study that comes up with null results. Did you push it enough to find an effect or not? So the conclusion here is if you see a difference, then you know it was because you push them. But if you don't see a difference, how do you know that difference isn't because you didn't push them versus they weren't capable of it? Yeah. We need to push our patients exactly the way that you say. I do that with every single patient. I would turn them on their heads if I could. I will give them large boluses if I feel they're complaining. They're coming to see me with a complaint. It is my job as you know, a, a professional to find out what is going on here. It's like when, you, when your car is having trouble on the highway and you bring it into the dealership and they just drive it around the parking lot and they're like, I don't hear anything. It's well, like, it you got to take it on the, the highway. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it always works for the electrician. Yeah. It always yeah. works for the plumber yeah. and it always works for the mechanic. Right. right. It always works for the speech pathologist when you give them the tiniest little bolus. Yeah. Are you trying to convince your administration to invest in fees or video strobe equipment? Or are you thinking about going out on your own to start your own private practice? Being able to calculate return on investment, doing a cost comparison, and presenting your findings in a professional way will be very important and is not everyone's strong suit. PatCon Medical is offering a webinar series specifically for SLPs to learn how to do all that. You will learn step-by-step -step and you will get all the tools needed. The best thing? It's completely free. Visit patcommedical.com forward slash webinar to sign up. We know this must be the case with COVID because I'm trying to get us back on topic. Can you see that? Someone has to get us back there. Um, <laughs> Thanks, because, Anna. I'm failing. <laughs> the statistics that are coming out of the literature is like 96% of people leave ICU eating and drinking, right? So it's like, oh, great. They all resolve in ICU. We'll be fine. We don't need to see them. Well, then you look at the outpatient data and it says 30 to 40% of the people who come in for an outpatient appointment complain of swallowing problems, up to 50 to 60 are complaining of voice problems. Well, the mismatch has got to be something, right? And the mismatch is that difference between patients' perception of being all right when I'm actually just glad I'm alive after, after I see you and now I'm at home and it's now pissing me off. And the fact that speech pathologists just aren't pushing them at that point, because for good reason, probably, that they weren't up to being pushed. But uh, we, we have to just keep that in our mind that 
okay at ICU discharge is not okay for a 45-year-old working academic who needs to talk all day and eat and drink whatever I like, usually in the car while racing to the next appointment. We have to, we have to we have to be clear whether we're discharging them totally or just saying for right now they're doing as well as I would like them to. Sally Archer and Camilla Dawson um, did two very well done studies. Uh, both of them obviously out of the UK in large numbers, over 100 patients in both of those cohorts. What strikes me specifically about those numbers is that they were putting somewhere between 20 and 30% of patients were coming out of uh, a hospital with dysphagia. Out of ICU, it was more toward two-thirds or three quarters, even as high as 80% um, in some studies beyond theirs that were coming out. And so, okay, so you're not into statistics and you're not into you know numbers and all the rest, that's fine. But these numbers in anyone's head should put you in the line of thinking of, if I'm seeing somebody normal on this video fluoroscopy, is it because I didn't test them right or I didn't test them enough or is it that they're truly normal? That's what I take from those studies. Those numbers are way too high um, with, with the COVID patients that they've seen. Um, I, I think it was Camilla Dawson's study, for example, they had 200 patients come into the hospital that were referred to SLP out of the 700 plus that were there greater than three days. And of those 200, over 100 were in ICU. 80% of them were trached. This is, these are large, large numbers. Um, and the bottom line here is, as a clinician, we need to be asking ourselves, okay, fine. Um, if you don't want to read the entire study, pick up and read the results or read the abstract. But the bottom line is, these are large numbers. And it needs to make you question the patient that you next see with COVID and you think is normal. Have you pushed them enough? But also a little bit around do, you know, I, I'm worried that we're going to tell every speech pathologist that they've, they're missing hundreds of people they should be seeing, that some of this may be about working smart with your teams you know, know that this whole taste smell issue is long term for COVID patients. A lot of these people are going to need dietitians. A lot of these people are going to have respiratory problems and they're going to need to see their respiratory physician. Should we be getting those people to be screening for swallowing and voice complaints? We have nice validated tools like voice handicap index and and eat, eat tens. We have ways that are quick and easy for these patients to be screened elsewhere. We don't necessarily have to be going around to every single person's house that's ever had COVID in our district <laughs> and providing them with a mobile fees. Um, but yeah, we we could we could be thinking smarter now we've got this number. You know, it's just such a mass. We have to find some smart way of looking at her. So, so let me clarify my earlier point. By no means am I suggesting that we should, you know, triple our caseloads and we should be seeing every single patient. Um, 
you know, the, the studies that were done were both referred samples. These were people who came into speech pathology or speech language therapy um, in the UK style, if you will. And they were not, it's not every single person who came into the hospital was screened for a speech pathologist. This was a referred sample. So the numbers are going to be likely quite different than if you were to see every single person across the face of the hospital. Um, so that's the first issue. The second issue is I get concerned about um, going to screen everybody because screenings by their very nature are targeting only those who we believe are at risk in the first place. We should not be going out into the nursing homes, screening every single patient for a swallowing disorder if they were never in the at-risk category in the first place. You know, if they're there simply because they don't have a caregiver at home, they're not able to take care of themselves because of cognitive issues or whatever, that's the reason why they're there. But because they have cognitive issues, could they have a swallowing disorder? Sure. But mom or dad or aunt or uncle or sister or brother has been eating just fine for the past three years. I haven't seen any problems with them. Are we going to screen those? Probably not. And that's my point. However, those who are uh, admitted to hospital with COVID have enough good reason to be screened, right? We know from our, our current data that their chances of dysphagia are high enough to make them worth keeping an eye on. And we have to do that some way other than speech pathologists doing in, in, in um, instrumental assessments on every single one of them. So what you're talking about is vigilance on the part of the medical team. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And, you know, this is another great chance to highlight speech pathology and, and highlight swallowing and voice and, and where it comes from, because a lot of physicians don't necessarily understand quite how many things lead to speech pathology uh, from gastro to neuro to respiratory, um, you know, we know we know we're a funny old disease disorder because we aren't one. <laughs> that we're we're a symptom of something else, um, and therefore we spend so, so significantly large amounts of our career trying to persuade people that we exist and that dysphagia exists because it's this weird thing that doesn't is not a thing. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it's another opportunity for us to educate, right? All roads lead to speech pathology. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all thinking, we're all communicating, we're all swallowing, right? Yeah, it's the truth. I, you know, I, it's, we may be a symptom, but we're, we're, we're the condition, we're the human condition. Um, and sometimes, you know, asking a professional for the help isn't a bad thing. Totally. This has been a wonderful conversation, both of you. Any any final thoughts? How do we wrap this up? Where where do we go from here? What are your reflections? Um, what do you think? What, yeah. You know, I, I will say I, I'm so grateful that we've gotten to this point. And what I mean by that is reiterating what you said in the beginning. It took us a while to get our footing. It took us a while to figure out what is our role in all of this. And I'm grateful that we did. And I'm grateful that we, we've almost, I don't want to say come out on the other side, but we, we know our role. We know how important we are in, and I don't know that that's what I meant to say, but 
we know that we're very valuable in helping these patients get back to eating, drinking, talking, communicating with their family members. And I think there was just so much, you know, we, we were fighting over the details in the beginning. And I'm so glad that we had these big organizations come together and say, you know, yes, th this is our role. This is what we have to be doing. And like we said, you know, don't do it without the proper PPE, but please go do your job and please go treat the patients. And I think that's just the bottom line is we just have to get back to doing our job, treating the patients the best way we know how, but taking these, you know, taking these risks into consideration and making sure that we're properly covered and cared for. Let me let me put that. I, you know, it's an interesting point, and I thought I was going to raise this a little bit earlier in the talk. Um, <laughs> here seems to be an appropriate place. Um, if you reflect on what we were doing before COVID hit the world, and very specifically in ICUs, the contact droplet airborne precautions that we were using, and very specifically to those that were in isolation rooms, and whether it was the MERS virus or it was the H1N1 or it's, and I use air quotes, simple TB, okay? We were using pappers then. We were using gowns then. And in fact, with TB, we didn't even use gowns. We used an, either an N95 mask or a papper and that was it. We didn't need a gown unless the person was actively um, creating sputum, in which case then we'd add the face shield to the N95 and we would add the gown and the gloves to everything else. Okay. Fast forward, you know, I mean, literally overnight and we're, we're wrestling with this next virus that came down the pike, this thing that they call the SARS-CoV-2 virus or COVID, um, or uh, coronavirus 2019. Okay. And the bottom line is PPE really hasn't changed much from what we would be using in active TB at all, period. So what did change, right? It was that everybody else needed to wear all of the garb. Okay, so for those of us who were in ICU and we were doing this on a daily or near daily basis, it was pretty old hat, right? But at least in the isolation rooms, certainly when you came out and you were talking with your colleagues at the desk or you were typing a chart note into the computer or you were talking with the nurse outside of a patient's room. No, nobody wore a papper. Nobody wore an N95. Nobody wore even a gown to do that. In fact, the gown had to be disposed of in the room that you just came out of, okay? But that's what changed. It's that suddenly the entire world now has to be wearing what I'm wearing going into an isolation room. Yeah. So is this really new? No, not to those of us who were doing it in the first place, but it is new to most of the rest of the world. And that's where I think most of the adjustment need to come from. So going forward, I think we can all hope and look forward to the day where we can once again speak with our colleagues and not wear a PAP or, or an N95 or a surgical mask uh, while we're standing outside an isolation room. That would be nice. Um, and yeah, I guess 
people just keep reading, keep reading the, the data because the numbers of patients that speech pathologists are going to need to see is going to increase in the next few years, not decrease. So use the data to fight for more FTE. You know, speech pathologists need to increase in number. We need to be fighting with our health services for increased speech pathology. We know that now. We've got great data that tells us how many people in ICU should be seen by a speech pathologist, yet the FTE in ICUs around the world is, is under what is needed. And we're now looking at a population of outpatients who are going to increase in front of our eyes. Act now while we can see the data coming and get the FTE in there because we're going to need we're going to be need to be on the table. We're going to need to be there and in in numbers. Um, don't let us all have to get burnt out another whole two years because we're all treating double the caseload we were that before COVID. Uh, because we can see it coming, so we need to we need to be prepared for it. Yeah, I it, just like the frontline workers got slammed at the beginning of this. Uh, disease at the beginning of this pandemic. That's how we will be slammed on the back end because from hospital, from sickness broadly, they need to go somewhere and they're coming to us and by the truckloads. Yeah. Be proud to be a speech pathologist and fight for more of us and, and we'll be a, we'll be in a better place. Great place. Great time to be a speech therapist speech pathology student, you know, our profiles on the way up where we've got plenty to do. And, you know, it's such a varied career. I'd never, ever regret the decision I made to choose this career. It's, it's incredible. And COVID has certainly given us plenty to work with. Yeah. And still does. All right. Well, thank you both so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. So I hope, hope everybody at least learn something, could take something away from this, because I know we've all been in this together. And as much as we feel like we've been disconnected in person, I know these you know, virtual things and, and talks like this can help a lot. So thank you both so much. Thanks for having us, Teresa. Yes, thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.